So this morning, our parish second graders made their first reconciliation. It was very exciting. Far from being the scary moment that many adults have equated it to be, it's a powerful, joy-filled experience for most kids, particularly at Our Lady of Mount Carmel. Without getting into the confessional specifics that are guarded by the seal, I can share a few moments of first reconciliations over the years, like this morning when a child was so excited that she danced up to the confessor going like this, all the way up. She was so excited. They're often nervous, but in anticipation. When we were practicing in faith formation classes, one girl asked me, okay, what if I faint or if I throw up? I said, please don't throw up. Many little ones try to high-five me as I'm absolving them. One kid sounded like John Wayne when he said, bless me, priest, for I have sinned. Another gave me two thumbs up when I gave him his penance. Some laugh while others cry, and they all smile when they leave. Gives the priest a little bit of a complex, I have to say. One boy had a finger in his nose for part almost all of his confession, let's face it. I mean, whatever makes you comfortable, but I'm not shaking your hand at the end, right? One child, I'm assuming, took a symbolic description of sin as a sickness of the heart, literally. So when he got to the confession, he started talking about when he had the flu, and it was really bad, and when he had a headache, and when he had bronchitis, and that was bad too. So I'd explained to what sin was to this budding hypochondriac. One squirmy little boy sat down and threw himself at God's mercy, proclaiming, I don't remember anything about this. So I said, that's okay, I'll guide you through it. Just say, bless me, Father. He said, bless me, Father, for I have sinned, for I have sinned. And frustrated with his squirming, I said, okay, now hold still. And he said, okay, now hold still. (laughs) Second graders go to confession because we believe as a church they have reached the age of reason and to know what the difference is between right and wrong. And through them, we get a glimpse, though, of the innocence with which we all started, as we heard in our first reading today. By contrast, I read an article recently that caught my attention that research indicates that as adults, we are unable, just listen to this, we are unable to go more than three minutes without thinking something negative, making a judgment, complaining in our hearts. Shouldn't surprise us if we're plugged into our modern day culture as we complain seemingly about everything. Of all the gifts that we have been given, why is it that we gravitate toward the negative? And yet, we aren't born this way, as we heard in our first reading today. When we see little children in the worst of circumstances that survive and even flourish, we call them resilient, as they were able to forget the bad and focus on the good and the pure and, frankly, the holy. When Jesus finished his brief announcement that today this scripture passage is fulfilled in your hearing, we hear that, All the people spoke highly of him. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. That was their first and gut and innocent reaction. Taken from the prophet Isaiah that we heard last week, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor, liberty to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and proclaim a year acceptable to the Lord, a beautiful, positive and joy-filled announcement. It was a powerful moment. The hometown boy had done good. 
people are impressed. Eyebrows raised. Wow, this is interesting. But then what happens? The very next words out of the town people's mouths are, wait a minute, wait a minute, isn't this the son of Joseph? This comment wasn't neutral, wasn't a compliment. They're making a judgment. They're tearing down. Joseph was, a ju- was just a carpenter, therefore Jesus was supposed to remain just a carpenter, a nobody. What's going on here? Once they begin to question, they become suspicious, they become cynical, as well as susceptible to fear, which is the chief motivator of all of our faults, which is one step removed from anger and then violence. And before long, as we hear in our gospel today, they're ready to chuck Jesus off a cliff. Spiritual writer Thomas Merton called our tendency towards that negativity, judgment, complaining, impatience, and comparison, and competition, all the tools of the false self. It isn't real. It isn't what it should be. The false self is what we create to protect ourselves from others, even God. It is fear-based because our true self, as we know, is made in the image and likeness of God and responds to God's will. That we are made in the image and likeness of God is something that never changes. But when we create our false self, however, we stop being the likeness of God. We become the likeness of the false self and the devil. And the false self responds with fear by cultivating negativity, cynicism, and judgment. The false self complains and tears down in order to maintain its status. And when we're operating out of the false self, we lose a proper sense of humility. We're arrogant. We can't see that we're ever wrong. Our actions, lifestyles, our moral decisions or lack of moral decisions, the way we relate to others are all justifiable in our minds. Of course, the antithesis of the false self is the love that St. Paul talks about in his letter to the Corinthians. St. Paul, in what is perhaps one of the most well-known passages of Scripture, tells us about love. The problem is, when we read this passage, we tend to read not necessarily what St. Paul says, but what we try to make St. Paul say. For example, nowhere does St. Paul say love is an emotion. Nowhere does St. Paul say that love feels good necessarily. Nowhere does he say that love is about yourself and your personal satisfaction in life, or having your needs and wants met. Nowhere do we find any of those things because they're the thoughts of the false self. In fact, what we find St. Paul saying is exactly the opposite, that love is focused on others. It's patient, kind, gentle. It's not self-seeking. And that is the only way we are going to find the fulfillment that love can bring. As St. Thomas Aquinas once said, love is willing the good of another. But this isn't always an easy thing to do, for we live in a society that's so completely focused on the false self and really false needs. And it's very easy to fall into the trap because authentic love requires a great deal of selfless work in God's kingdom. St. Paul reminds us that when love is true, it doesn't matter how much is coming back. All that matters is that you give. 
but we're taught things otherwise and to think otherwise. We want to know what we're going to get. What's in it for me, we say. Look once again at the characteristics of love and ask yourself, is this me with the most trying and difficult people in my life? Is this what people see when they speak to me and see my example? Am I patient and kind and gentle and selfless? Do I endure all things with joy in my heart and bear all things and accept all the crosses that God affords me? Do I build up instead of tear down? When we don't love, which includes risk and vulnerability and sacrifice, then we really have nothing that is supernatural. But if we have the love that is modeled on the cross and is represented to us during this sacred liturgy, when we receive Jesus' body, blood, and soul and divinity, then we have found the pearl of great price, as the scriptures tell us. We have found love, and we have found the Lord.